Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus increment 101 already. And we'll be going to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where we have the homage to the word of God. In God, I will praise his word. As Psalm 56 says, certainly applies to our passage. We're going to begin with prayer. Father, we pray that you'll speak plainly to us today through the Holy Spirit. And may your spirit assimilate us to Christ that we may experience the livingness that is in him, the way of being that is in the second Adam, the heavenly man. And we ask this in Christ's name and with absolute confidence that you'll fulfill it for all those who hear wherever, whenever, and whomever hears this message. In Jesus' name, we thank you for it. Amen. First, think about Hebrews chapter 4. Then we're going to be looking at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the rightly famous bodily resurrection chapter. First, again, Hebrews 4.12. Our translation up to this point is this, and this is just the first half of the verse. Indeed, the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged sword, even penetrating as far as separation of soul and spirit. Separation as far as soul and spirit. The division between soul and spirit is more like it. Then, consider this, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 to 49, emphasis on 49. Thus also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Remember, we're dealing with the word of God Sharper than any double-edged, not just sword, but any double-edged blade, including the knife used by the high priest to separate joints from marrow in the sacrificial animals. So we have kind of a very early hint toward the priesthood and the sacrifices that we're going to be majoring on later in this wonderful discourse. This sharper than any two-edged blade, divides between, pierces to the division of soul and spirit. And that's what I wanted to emphasize before I read once again 1 Corinthians 15.45. Thus it is also written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Notice soul and spirit. Notice their division. Verse 46, certainly the first man is not spiritual, but the natural, and then the spiritual. 47, the first man is from the earth. The second man from heaven. There's another division there, the earth and heaven. Those who are made of the dust, 
is how this literally reads in verse 48. Those who are made of the dust are like the man of dust. That being the first man, Adam, made from the dust of the earth. The same earth that was cursed on account of his disobedience. Those who are made of dust are like the man of dust. And heavenly people are like the heavenly man. In verse 49, and just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, let us also bear the image of the heavenly man. Let us also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now there's a debate as to the wording of 1 Corinthians 15:49. Many translations, if not the majority of them, have quote, "We will also bear the image of the heavenly man." I don't think that's the correct translation, though that declaration is most certainly true. We will also bear the image of the heavenly man. Again, that declaration is indisputably and incontrovertibly true. In fact, it's emphatically true for every human being without exception over the course of all time. That was already made certain in 1 Corinthians 15.22 where the apostle proclaimed, "For For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ... All shall be made alive. Again, this is emphatically true that every person will bear the image of the heavenly man. Because as the same apostle wrote in Romans 5.18, through the righteous act of one, that being Jesus Christ, that being the second man, that being the last Adam, the righteous act of him, came the rectification of life to all people. And so the terrible condition of humanity, unrighteous and dead in sins, will be and has been rectified by their being made alive together with Christ. That being made alive together with Christ, is already the case with those whom God has awakened and granted faith. Ephesians 2.5-2.8-5.14 Now the net note, the New English Translation note, and their notes are often quite excellent, their note on 1 Corinthians 15.49 says this, and I'm doing all this because I want to be exegetically and interpretively precise. If the original reading is the future tense, then we will bear will be a guarantee that believers would be like Jesus and unlike Adam in the resurrection. If the aorist subjunctive is original, then let us bear would be a command to show forth the image of Jesus. A command to show forth the image of Jesus. I'd rather say an exhortation. To live as 
i.e., they say, to live as citizens of the kingdom that believers will one day inherit. And so they make a pretty good case for let us bear, let us go on to bear the image of the heavenly man as being an exhortation rather than a declaration, although as a declaration it's also true. A.T. Robertson, whom I consult with almost on every verse, evidently agrees with the net assessment. By net, I mean New English Translation Notes assessment. He renders, we shall also bear, which is in most translations, as a volative aorist active subjunctive, which again would simply be translated, let us also bear. He calls the verb, translated as bear, as a late frequentative form of the verb pharaoh. We've looked at that word under other considerations. Pharaoh, let us go on to perfection, for example, P-H-E-R-O, and it means to bear, to carry, etc. So volative, V-O-L-I-T-I-V, means that it's an exhortation appealing to our decision leading to action after deliberation. In other words, we deliberate, we decide we're going to go on to bear the image of the heavenly man and we enter into that. The frequentative expresses repetitive action. So we make a decision to enter into the action of bearing the image of the heavenly man. Not only in bodily resurrection, which will be where it will be inevitable, but even now, though then, completely. The word for what Adam became is a soul. It's psuche. And again, it's used the same way the same word is used in Hebrews 4.12. Psuche, P-S-U-C-H-A-D-A-E. Psuche in 1 Corinthians 15.45. It's also found in Hebrews 4.12 for that which is distinguished or separated from the spirit, which would be pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma, which is distinguished from a merely living soul. A life-giving spirit lives unto God and lives for the benefit of others. A living soul can live only for himself if he wants to, and usually does. So the last Adam is distinguished from the first man, as a life-giving spirit is distinguished from a merely living soul. And that's what Adam became by his first creation out of the dust. The word for heavenly is epuranios in the Greek, E-P, and you'll notice the heaven, the word uranos is in the middle of this, O-U-R-A-N-I-O-S. Epuranios is used twice 
in 1 Corinthians 15, 48, and once in Hebrews, or rather 1 Corinthians 15, 49. That same word, eporanios, meaning heavenly, or upon the heavens, or something to do with the heavens, based in the heavens. That same word, that same adjective, is used in Hebrews 3, 1, to describe the heavenly calling of which the recipients of Hebrews are partakers. We are partakers of a heavenly calling, epuranios. So there's a use of epuranios both in Hebrews in a key way as well as in this 1 Corinthians passage. The word epuranios is also used in the phrase heavenly gift which these readers had tasted in Hebrews 6.4, and which we have, many of us. It's used for heavenly things, generally, of which the earthly tabernacle in the desert was merely a copy and a shadow, Hebrews 8.5. So the tabernacle on earth pounded into the dust of the earth with tent pegs and therefore relegated to the earth is only a copy and a shadow of a heavenly tabernacle which in Hebrews 9.10 and 9.11 is not even of this world or of this creation, not man-made. And Hebrews 9.23 also uses that word eparanios to speak of heavenly things that are to be purified by better sacrifices than the animal sacrifices, which only ritually purified the copies of those things. Now in Hebrews 11.16, the adjective eparanios, or heavenly, describes the better fatherland, the land, or the better fatherland, or homeland, for which the faith sojourners looked in Hebrews 11:16. Finally, and this should be familiar to us or at least in our recent memory, it's the adjective describing the city of the living God in Hebrews 12:22, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city which we are partakers of a he- we who are partakers of a heavenly calling should be letting into our minds. Again, Jeremiah 51.50 is to me the theme verse of a topic called Uranopolis, or the heavenly city. Let Jerusalem come into your mind. I have adapted to an exhortation for believers in the present generation and generations to follow. To let this new Jerusalem and our citizenship in it come into our mind, come into our soul, capture our hearts and minds. That's also that above Jerusalem is found in Galatians 4.26. Jesus speaks of it in Revelation 3.12 as the city comes down from heaven from my Father. And this speaks not just of our future, but our present citizenship in heaven. Paul said it in the present tense in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
It's from there that we expect a Savior, Soter, not Caesar, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall come and change the bodies of our humiliation, our current humiliation, and that's not a bad thing, the bodies of our humiliation, into a body of glory. He's able to do this, says 321 of Philippians, by the same power by which he subjects all things to himself. Again, an allusion to Psalm 110.1, which is alluded to and quoted even in Hebrews 1.13 and 10.13. So now we're ready to enter into some deeper doctrine. In the Corinthian passage, Paul is speaking on many levels and of many things, really throughout the whole chapter there in 1 Corinthians 15. He is speaking of the natural body, the natural human body made of dust that the first man had. And he's speaking of the spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, that the man from heaven received in his bodily resurrection by a transformation of his flesh, his fleshly body. But here's what's important. Well, it's all important, but here's what's more on target for today. But Jesus was the man from heaven before he received that spiritual body by bodily resurrection. And he announced to the Pharisees, I am from above. So he's the man from heaven even before he's resurrected. By being enfleshed in incarnation, in the days of his flesh, he could still say, I am from above. In fact, he said to them, you are from below. You are from beneath. I am from above. To Nicodemus, that was John 8, 23. To Nicodemus, he spoke of himself as the son of man who descended from heaven. And that he was going to ascend back to heaven in John 3.13, also in John 6.62, in the famous Manna Midrash at a synagogue in Capernaum. And speaking of that Midrash at a synagogue in Capernaum, he said there, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I'm speaking to you are spirit, pneuma, and they are life. That's John 6.63. So again, he was already the man from heaven before he received the spiritual body, 1 Corinthians 15.44, in bodily resurrection. He was also a life giver before his bodily resurrection. Not only did he say, my words are spirit and life, he also said of his sheep in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. I give them the life of the coming age. The point I'm making is that a meaningful experience, let's just say to use alliteration, to a meaningful measure and to a discernible degree, in a meaningful measure and to a discernible degree, 
we can bear the image of the heavenly man and manifest the life of Jesus, 2 Corinthians 4.11, even now in our mortal bodies before we receive our spiritual body in which we will be like him for we will have seen him as he is. Again, let me say it again. In a meaningful measure and to a discernible degree, we can bear the image of the heavenly man and manifest the life of Jesus even now in our mortal bodies. Though when we receive our bodies, our spiritual bodies as they're called in 1 Corinthians 1.44, we will be altogether like him, that heavenly man, and will manifest his life and his livingness and his very way of being, as well as his heavenly citizenship, and we will do so completely. For all of humanity will ultimately be those who are called into glory. Hebrews 2.10. How can I say that, and why should I? Because as many as God justified, those he also glorified. Or if you want to put it in an aorist constitutive sense, as many as God justifies, those he also glorifies. In Romans 8.30. And he justifies all because of the one who died and in whose dying all died. And God glorifies all whom he justifies. So if God justifies all because of Jesus Christ's one righteous act that led to the justification of all, if God justifies all, then he glorifies all. So all of humanity is ultimately called into glory and will experience the eschatological Sabbath in which the Shekinah of God's glory fills everything every person, every being, and the entire material creation, which will have been transformed to become an eternal creation. That's pretty good news. It's something to be remembered. It's something to be expected. It's something to be anticipated. But we're not just left with hope, this hope as a consolation, a deferred consolation in a miserable world. No, in this so-called miserable world, we are able to, in some discernible measure, some meaningful degree, to manifest the life of Jesus Christ and to experience his joy in John 15, 11, his peace in John 14, 27, his love in John 13, 34, 2 Corinthians 5.14, Ephesians 3.19, and have it continue in a brotherly love setting in Hebrews 13.1. Now, this is extremely important stuff, and I'm impressed by the Holy Spirit to repeat some of these things. All of humanity will ultimately be those who are called to glory and will be in glory. As many as God justifies, those he glorifies, and he justifies all, so he glorifies all. 
When we see Jesus with the eyes of our heart crowned with glory, we see him, therefore, as the forerunner for us who has entered for us into the heavenly places beyond the veil of the heavenly tabernacle that is not of this creation and not made by human artifice or erected by the useless flesh. It is a heavenly tabernacle. He's already there for us. So even though we are accountable and will face the assessment by God, we have already been assessed in Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who was already judged at the cross, raised from the dead, passed through the heavens, entered heaven's holy of holies for us as a forerunner for us, and therefore now we live with a hope that is the anchor for our soul in the undulating waves and seas of this life. No matter what happens in history, this hope is our anchor. And it's anchored not below us in the sea, but above us in the heavens, beyond the veil, where Jesus himself is as our representative and forerunner. I would have to leave this up to the Holy Spirit to show you the significance of him as our forerunner and the depth of the hope that only the Holy Spirit can make this hope overflow in us in Romans 15, 13. And this hope is not a shame because in the interim, the love of God is being poured out in our hearts as Romans 5, 5 says. And again, this love is the kind of love that God demonstrated for us while we were yet in the height of our sinfulness. Christ died then. While we were ungodly, Romans 5, 6. While we were yet in the throes of sinfulness, Romans 5, 8. All right. The way that even now we can bear the image of the heavenly man and begin to leave behind the bearing of the image of the man of dust. How do we do this? How does it happen? It's really not something we do because without him we can do nothing. So the way that we bear the image of the heavenly man and begin to leave behind the bearing of the image of the man of dust is by allowing the word of God to penetrate our being and to separate the soul from the spirit. To separate the soul that gravitates to the dust, as Psalm 119.25 says, the dust of the earth, Gravitating to the dust means that the soul always gravitates toward a bearing of the image of the man of dust. The man of dust is distinguished from the spirit of man 
which is orientated to heavenly things so as to free our spirit. That division between soul and spirit frees the spirit, our human spirit. The authentic you, the authentic me is freed. Now listen carefully to this because this is an extremely important distinction that separates all religiosities from the true spiritual life of Christianity. By this I do not mean that our spirit is liberated from our body. That's Gnosticism, and that is rooted in a Platonic or Plato's philosophy. So by this freeing of the spirit, I do not mean that the spirit is liberated from our body as the Gnostics taught. But I rather mean that the spirit can be liberated from Adam's way of being. While we still inhabit these mortal bodies that are destined to be immortalized in bodily resurrection. And so this liberation occurs in the school of Christ, as the scripture says, in the school of Christ, who himself is the living word and whose words are spirit and life. Again, John 6.63. These words lead to spiritual life, to the higher integration of human living, as I've called it before, a higher integration of human living that is simply humans living outside of themselves in Christ and by the Spirit. And the Spirit is he who assimilates us to Christ and causes our lives to be an imitation of him, as Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says. So this higher integration of human living, this is how Ephesians, or rather Hebrews 4.12, flows beautifully from 4.11 and from the, all that goes before Hebrews 4.12 in this homily. This rest, this, this spiritual life, this higher integration of human living is also the Sabbath observance that remains for the people of God to enter, which Hebrews 4.9 talks about. This rest is entered and this Sabbath observed by bearing the image of the heavenly man. And that bearing of the image of the heavenly man has to come about by the division of the soul from the spirit by the infinitely razor sharp word of God. Again, for us, the rest that is entered. And what is needed above all now in the turbulent times in which we are and which we're going to be more turbulent, no doubt, in the future is rest, interior rest, and a rest of harmony between believers. Again, for us, the rest that is entered and the Sabbath that is observed is the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus who conforms us to his reality and a life in the spirit who assimilates us to Christ. The entry into that rest requires a separation of soul 
from spirit. Souls, which relate to sense and are subjected to a world of sense and sensation, this present creation, this present world, must be separated from the spirit, small s, which is orientated to and subjected to the heavenly world, the world to come, the future world, which can be experienced in some meaningful measure and to some discernible degree even now. This is the junction, as I would call it, of spirit and faith. For the scripture says that one has a spirit of faith, not a soul of faith. It says we have the same spirit of faith in 2 Corinthians 4 or 13, not soul of faith. When there is a spirit of faith, the soul is saved, as Hebrews 10, 38 and 39 says. But when a soul sins, it sins by unbelief, and the soul that sins dies, means it enters into a separation from fellowship with God. That's what perishing means. It doesn't mean dying and going to hell. It means getting stuck in the evil age without hope and without faith and without love. And so the word of God penetrates to the division of soul and spirit, and it becomes a critic of the ideation. That means the place where we come up with ideas. It's where there is a generation of ideas and the intentionality of the heart. This is where the word of God actually criti criticizes or judges ideologies and idolatries. That's what's called in psychology ideation. It includes idolatries or sets of doctrines shared by socio-political groups that forms a system, and the system includes a bias and intolerability, sometimes a dangerous bias that leads to lack of tolerance and even persecution of those with other viewpoints. So when men and women share the same spirit of faith, there is an intersubjectivity on the fifth level of consciousness. That's when faith begins to pull up history from its nosedives and its declines. Faith is the supernatural power of God that together with many other believers, the spirit of faith can actually pull history up from a nosedive of decline before a nation is destroyed. That's how important faith is. That's how important it is when it becomes on the fifth level of consciousness, when we all begin to have the same spirit of faith. That's why Hebrews is the perfect thing to be studying right now, the perfect homily to be studying in such a time as this. When men and women share the same spirit of faith, there is what is known as an intersubjectivity on the fifth level of consciousness. The spirit of faith shared by many people, offsets and overcomes the effects of ideologies whose beliefs lack the faith of which the Bible speaks. Faith that is a responsiveness to the word of God. Faith that is in Christ Jesus and that is ultimately a participation in his own faithfulness. So here again, 
let's go back to Hebrews 4, 10 to 11, and see how it flows evenly and segues smoothly into 4.12. We're going verse by verse. Verse 10, for the one who enters into rest, that's the person who enters God's Sabbath, even now, ceases from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us make every effort to enter into that rest so that we don't fall into the same pattern of disobedience and disbelief, that is, of the majority of the desert generation. Then it goes right into verse 12 and says, Indeed, the word of God is living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit. And I'll leave it there in terms of that verse at 4a for now. As the word of God divides between soul and spirit, so the scripture distinguishes between the natural or the merely soulish man and the spiritual man. The soulish man is not too far removed from the animal soul and thus from the animal sacrifices of the old Levitical order of priestly function. That sounds outlandish of a statement to make, but I think you're going to find that it will flow into the rest of our study of Hebrews. I'll say it again. The soulish man, he's called Sukikos, is not too far removed from the animal soul and thus from the animal sacrifices of the old Levitical order of priestly function. The soulish or the natural man, as he's called in 1 Corinthians 2.14, is the man who is orientated to the dust and vulnerable to the serpent. Because what did God say to the serpent? On your belly you shall move and eat dust all your life. The man of dust is therefore susceptible to being devoured by the serpent who eats dust all the days of his life. In other words, as to mix metaphors up, the devil roams about like a ravenous roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's the serpent who only devours dust. He only devours the man of dust and those who bear the image of the man of dust. He can't touch the man from heaven, nor can he touch those who bear the image of the man from heaven. Of that person, 1 John 5.18b says, the evil one doesn't touch him. Nor does he have power, the serpent, the devil, as he's called in Hebrews 2.14. He does not have power over those who bear the image of the heavenly man. The serpent devours the man of the dust because even though that so-called natural man, anthropos psychikos, 1 Corinthians 2.14, even though that man in his best estate can appreciate things that are true, lovely, virtuous, and noble, and even though he may represent human nature at its best, the natural or soulish man is still basically oriented to the things of the earth and is only a living soul. 
The one who bears the image of the heavenly man, on the other hand, is the spiritual man, anthropos pneumatikos, or pneumatikos, 1 Corinthians 2.15, that person has a heavenly orientation and is not only subordinated to transcendent, earthly, visible, and imaginable realities, and this is all going to be in print where it's going to find more value for you, He's also subordinated to God in Christ and is led by the Holy Spirit. He or she is orientated beyond the transcendentals or the best things of the earth and the visible and human and imaginable things of this world. And the spiritual person is subordinated and submitted to God. Notice what James 4, 7 says. Submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil is only resisted successfully by those submitted to God. Those who are submitted to God are the spiritual people that the Bible talks about as pneumatikos anthropos. They are the ones who bear the image of the heavenly man. And the heavenly person is orientated to things that are known only through revelation and by faith. So the word of God distinguishes between the soul that gravitates toward the dust of the earth, that bears the image of the first man, Adam, that operates in what we call the Adamic ontology. It separates that from the spirit of man where faith is had and where there is an orientation to heavenly reality. Therefore, it separates soul from spirit so the person can live a spiritual life bearing the image of the heavenly man oriented to heaven, filled with hope, controlled by the love of Christ, operative in a spirit of faith, and as operative in a spirit of faith is a person who literally, along with others, has the power to lift history up from its declines into a renaissance of history, to rebirths of history, and to a redemption of time and history. That's why the Bible says, redeem the time. Redeem the time, for the days are evil, in Ephesians 5.16. Redeem the time, in Colossians 4.5. And so, in closing today, to bear the image of the man of dust means to operate or to have our being and have our livingness in what we've called the Adamic ontology. To bear the image of the heavenly man is to operate in what we have called the Christic ontology. In solidarity with Christ, we will certainly all bear his image in bodily resurrection. And I mean all of humanity in all of its times. In solidarity with Christ. Why? Because when one died for all, all died. There's a solidarity of all humanity in Christ. In Adam, there's a solidarity in which all men die. In Christ, all will be made alive. So in solidarity with Christ, we will all certainly bear his image in bodily resurrection. But in Christic ontology, that is, in our present livingness, we may bear the image now in mortal bodies. 
This is the present aspect of the process we call instauration. Now, today I've introduced a lot of new things, but they're going to be fanned out into doctrinal realities, and they're going to be fanned out into plain speaking and plain and clear language that's going to become incentive and momentum for spiritual living in times to come and the means for the pulling up of history from the nosedive it's in right now. All right, so that's how important it is. We're continually delivered over in this life to situations in which the flesh is revealed to be useless. Let me say that again. We are continually delivered over to situations in this life in which the flesh is revealed to be useless. And that's a good thing. Because we need to discover that Adamic ontology is not helpful, neither to ourselves, to others, or to history itself. And we need to also discover that the life of Jesus will be manifested in our mortal bodies as a result of finding how useless the flesh is and how self-destructive Adamic ontology is. And so that we will live in a participation in his faithfulness and his perseverance controlled by his love which surpasses and transcends the merely natural love that the natural man can express. Again, it's the word of God that is the essential tool in this process. Hebrews 4.12, again, indeed, the word of God is currently living and active. It's relevant now and vitally so is what he means. It's sharper than every double-edged blade whether it's a sword in battle or a knife used to separate the parts of the animal sacrifices. The word is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged sword. Happy are you if you're under the ministry of the word of God instead of wandering through the desert aimlessly because you're actually experiencing a critique of the thoughts and intents of the heart and the loving grace of God that you won't have to experience traumatically at the judgment seat of Christ. The word of God is currently living and active and it becomes a living current in your body like an electrical current in your soul and your spirit. It's sharper than every double-edged sword, even penetrating as far as to a separation of soul and spirit. So there is a way of living and being that is Adamic. And there is a way of being that bears the image of the man of dust. That's the Adamic ontology. But thank God, there is a way of being and a way of living called Christic or Christocentric or Christological. This way of being bears the image of the heavenly man, even now, although then, after bodily resurrection, it will be completely. So, Father, we thank you for this word today and for the many opportunities you've afforded us in our time of jubilee or time of separation from services and religious observances as we've learned recently. And in this time we thank you 
that in our absence all the more we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because you are the one enacting that salvation. You are the one willing and doing in us. And we thank you, Father, for the paradox that we strive to enter into rest. Our battle is to stay in rest. And we thank you that you're giving us victory in this. May we become a cadre of believers in Jesus Christ. And may our children and children's children become part of a cadre of the spirit of faith that pulls up history, history of our nation, the history of the nations, plural, from a nosedive that it's in even now. And we ask this in bold confidence that you'll bring it about through awakening person after person after person to a knowledge of Christ. May thousands, even today and in the days to come, and even millions, wake up so that Christ can shine on them, according to Ephesians 5.14. I ask this in Jesus' name, while I give thanks to you, Father, for providing, for sustaining, and for lifting us up through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.